listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're visiting with us today, I'm so glad you're here. We're working our way through this New Testament letter called Hebrews. And we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 4. So I think you'd be really helped if you had a copy of God's Word open in your lap. Uh, My job is not to entertain you or impress you. It's, Lord willing, just to bring you to God's Word. That's what we need this morning. And then after I preach, we're going to receive communion, which is is our custom on the first Sunday of the month. And so if you are a member of this church or you're a member of another church and you are believing in the gospel that we believe and preach here, then you are welcome to receive communion with us. Okay, here's what we're going to do today. By the way, you guys look great sitting on new carpet. I just had to throw that in there. Come on now. Don't don't spill any stuff until, you know, let's give us a couple months. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, if you're waking up in the morning and you were thinking, I've got one sermon to preach, I want to preach a text that will preach, Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 might be one that you wouldn't choose because it's a a tad hard to follow the argument. We're going to read through almost pretty much the whole chapter. And then actually next Sunday on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the last three verses, which in God's kindness is just a wonderful text to explain the gospel from at the end of Hebrews. But here's a chapter, here's an argument in the middle of this this letter that contains logic, which to our 21st century minds might be a tad difficult to follow. If you were a first century Jew living in Rome, and you were the target audience of this letter in the first century, it it would make a lot of sense to you, likely. Because the point of Hebrews is to not go back. It's to hold fast to Jesus. It's written to a group of first century Hebrews or Jews living in Rome, very likely, who were tempted because of either persecution or because of just their own faint-heartedness or the weakness of their own sanctification to go back to what was easier because they were being persecuted for being Christians. And Judaism was accepted in the Roman Empire and They weren't being persecuted for that. And so there's this tendency for them to go back to the Old Covenant. And really, the argument of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, more than the author of Hebrews, even though it's a letter, it's really a sermon, his argument to them is that Jesus is worth it. Hold fast. Draw near to Jesus. He's better than anything in the Old Covenant. And that's what the first three chapters have been about. He talked about how Jesus is the final, full revelation of God. In fact, he's God in the flesh. And He's better than the angels, which seems strange to us. Like, why would the writer compare Jesus to angels? Well, it's because angels were the mediator of this old covenant, of the Old Testament. And so in a Jewish mind, to have Jesus exalted over the angels was a big deal. And then the author says that he's better than Moses. That's chapter 2. He's better, or chapter 3, he's better than Moses. And here in chapter 4, He's going to take a little bit of a side trail, and he's going to say that Jesus is our rest, and he's going to look at the Old Testament, and he's going to pick up, it's very important that we understand this background, 
he's going to pick up on what he started in Hebrews chapter 3. And here's this background story that you need to know to understand Hebrews chapter 4, this concept of the rest of God. The rest of God. Now, what is he talking about when he's talking about the rest here in chapter 4? Well, the story that Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 is sitting on as a foundation is the Old Testament scene of Israel in the wilderness after God had rescued them from Egyptian captivity. He parted the Red Sea. Through Moses, he brought them across the sea, closed the sea in on Pharaoh's army. Now they're at Mount Sinai. He gives them the law, and he tells them, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, which for Old Testament Israel was a kind of temporary, a kind of earthly rest, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the people, after God has done these wonderful things for them, I mean, can you imagine a sea splitting, you walking through it, the people that are pursuing you, the sea comes in on top of them, you're safe, and then God provides for you in the wilderness. He causes manna to fall from heaven and birds to fall from heaven. He just gives you food. And yet, in spite of all God's goodness and his promise of the rest, his promise of safety in the promised land, Israel complains against Moses and ultimately against God. And Moses sent out a few spies to go spy out the promised land as they were on the edge of the promised land in Numbers chapter 12 and 13. And he sent out 12 spies, in fact, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of the spies come back and they're just pessimistic. Oh my gosh, there's giants in the land. There's no way we can defeat them. In fact, to them, we would be like grasshoppers. They're going to eat us. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, God's been with us. He can do this. Come on, we got some work to do, but we can do this. And then Israel starts to complain and moan against God. And so God, through Moses, tells them, because of the hardness of your hearts, all of you in this generation, you that are complaining, you that are forgetting my goodness, I'm going to let you die in the desert. And only the children of Joshua and Caleb in this generation is going to make it into the promised land. And using that warning in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews now is warning these first century Jews. And he's saying, remember this picture, this shadow in the Old Testament of God warning the people before he was about to bring them into this rest of the Canaan land, the promised land. And don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. And it's what he's saying to us today through this letter. So that's the background. And let's read now. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a few verses because if I read it all the way through, it might be a little bit difficult for us to sort of wrap our, wrap our minds around. So I'm going to read a few verses and stop and give you a truth that I think summarizes that section. We're going to do that about three times and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. All right, you ready? Okay, let's open our Bibles. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 first. Before I do that, let me pray. Lord, help us. Help us. Help me. My job today, my assignment, is to explain Hebrews 4 faithfully and clearly to these people that I love. Lord, some have been walking with you for a long time, some not so long, and some do not know you. Help me speak in such a way that I speak to every group. 
so that your work and your will would be done. And as we leave this room, Lord, may we, all of us, wherever we are on the spectrum, find our rest in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and by the way, the therefore means that he's reflecting on what he has said to us in Hebrews chapter 3, and it is this warning, remember the prod that he's saying, okay, there's this promise of what God has done for you in the gospel, but the way he gets his people there is by prodding them, and he tells them to take care, to, to, to look at your life, to guard your heart against the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So in one sense, this rest is something that's still out there, and yet we're going to see this kind of back and forth. It's this thing that we already possess as Christians. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as it did to, just as to them, speaking of this Old Testament people in the desert. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what he's talking about in verse 2, again, he's referring to Israel in the wilderness. He's saying that, listen, some, that they heard the good news that God had a rest for them, that God would bring them all the way home, so to speak, in a temporary sense in the Old Testament. But they, it didn't do them any good because they didn't unite faith. They didn't, they didn't believe in what God said. And even after he had rescued them from Egyptian captivity. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the sea opening up and you walking through it? And then a few months later, you're murmuring against God because you're getting sick of bread and quail falling from heaven. And you're saying to him, I'd rather go back to Egypt. They didn't believe that God would bring them all the way home. And so it did them no good. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's referring to Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, I'm going to hopefully explain that because it's getting a little bit difficult to follow here. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. I think that's interesting, verse 4. It's not like the writer of Hebrews didn't know that scripture reference. In fact, it's the second chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. He's just assuming that everybody knows what he's talking about. So for somewhere spoken of on the seventh day in this way, God has rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, what's going on in these first five verses? And then I want us to unfold the truth. The first is that, First thing that I want you to see in the first couple of verses is that he's basically just saying that, that there's a promise still out there, that this Old Testament picture of the rest that God gives his people, it's still a promise that is there for the people of God. In fact, I think one of the underlying assumptions of Hebrews chapter 4 is that the Old Testament in large part, God's dealing with real people, it's a real history, it actually happened but it's a kind of picture that becomes a picture or a shadow 
of what God promises his people in the new covenant in Christ. And so this rest that he promised Israel, the promised land, it really is pointing us forward to the rest that he promises his people in Christ. And so the rest, really the ultimate rest, still stands. In other words, God is still offering his people rest. The rest of him of, of God. And what does that rest mean? Well, he, he alludes to God himself resting. In verse 4, he says, in verse 3, he says, his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of on the seventh day that God rested on the seventh day from all his works, referring obviously to the creation account. Now, what does it mean that God rested? Well, it doesn't mean that God was was tired or fatigued, like God really put in six hard days, and then on the seventh day, he, he needed to rest out of fatigue. But it's speaking of completion. And this rest, already in these first five verses, we're seeing that this rest, it's speaking about, we need to understand this for this chapter to make sense in the argument of Hebrews. This rest is talking about something more than just a physical earthly location because if God was speaking merely about the promised land or the Canaan land then we should all stop what we're doing and we should all migrate to Israel and set up camp there if that's what the rest is but this rest here in Hebrews chapter 4 is using the physical rest of the promised land in the Old Testament as a picture of the rest in fact it's God's rest is God completing what he's done and inviting his people back into fellowship with him, which has been severed because of sin. And so here's the first thing that I want us to notice in these first five verses, this take-home truth. Notice this. Here's the warning. It's really a warning. He says, let us fear lest any of us don't make it like these Old Testament people did not make it, that died in the desert. And it's this, truth number one, we don't find rest just by hearing the message. We have to believe it. We have to believe it. Now, what's the parallel to us? Because I don't think any of you, some of you may be ethnically Jewish. Uh, and if you are, praise God, I'd love to meet you um, and, and just hear your heritage. I think that's wonderful and fascinating. But the the the... The obstacle for the first century Jew, or even for the Old Testament Jew, was to think that they were somehow right with God just because of who they were as a Jew, that God somehow owed them something. And they thought that just because God had done all these things for them, that this meant that God sort of owed them something. But they perished in the desert. What's the, what's the application to us? Because I don't think any of us are resting on our necessarily our Jewness or our ethnicity. But we do sometimes rest on a kind of nominal Christianity. We, we, we sometimes trick ourselves, especially in this part of the country in the Deep South, that if we, we just kind of hear it, if we just physically locate ourselves in a church and I just give mental assent to the gospel, that somehow that means that I'm going to make it all the way home. And what's happening in Hebrews chapter 4 is it's a warning of God. To say that what it means to rest in God, what it means to make it all the way home, not only then, but to have 
peace with God now is not just to locate yourself in a sanctuary relatively often and to give mental assent to the message, but to actually rest in it, to believe in it, to put all of your hope in what God has said. So we don't find rest just by hearing the message. We find rest, we find peace with God by actually actually believing the message, by putting our hope in it, by, by turning away from things that would draw us away, by, by, by not letting ourselves be dragged away by the deceitfulness of sin, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, that's verses 1 through 5. Let's keep going, verses 6 through 11. All right, now, this gets even a little bit harder to follow for our 21st century ears, so let me read slowly, verses 6 through 11. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, meaning the rest, but it's still out there, this rest of God, this rightness with God, which obviously is it's, it's, it's ultimately in Christ, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Okay, now he's going to break off into a little rabbit trail in verses 7 through 10, and he says, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, that's quoting Psalm 95, like he did in Hebrews chapter 3. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, that's totally clear, right? No need for explanation. Okay, here's what I want to do to help us understand what's going on in verses 6 through 11. Verses 7 through 10 are a kind of a rabbit trail in the mind of the preacher of Hebrews. So I find actually great comfort in that, that even preachers inspired divinely by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God sometimes take rabbit trails. That's a, did you get what I was saying there? Sometimes I do that too. Come on, lighten up. And so what I want to do to help you see the logic of verses 6 through 11, if I read just verses 6 through 11 together, I think it will make more sense. I want you to see that's the ultimate point of this section. And then verses 7 through 10 are him reflecting on the Old Testament, bolstering the point that he's making if we read verses 6 through 11 together. So let me read it again, just verses 6 through 11. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, meaning the rest of God, peace with God, not only salvation now, but also final and full glorification, so the rest of God is both and. It's not just here. It's not just a, it's certainly not a physical place here, but it's also not just a spiritual place here. It's a future spiritual state. It's both and. So since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. So you get that right now. So he's saying, look, it's still there. It's open. And some of them didn't because they didn't believe. Okay. Verse 11, let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So that's just a straightforward warning. 
using the Old Testament scene of Israel in the wilderness as an exhortation and a warning to us. So if you read verses 6 through 11 together, it makes a whole lot of sense. He's basically saying, okay, since God's mercy is still available, since it's still out there, and there were those who didn't make it, like we saw in the Old Testament, let us, therefore, strive. Let us do whatever we can to enter into that rest so that we don't end up like they did. That's what's going on in verses 6 through 11. But what's going on in verses 7 through 10? What's this rabbit trail in the mind of the preacher? Well, again, he's reflecting on the Old Testament, Psalm 95, and this warning through David in Psalm 95, which is written as a reflection, a song, reflecting on what happened in Israel's wilderness wanderings and their complaining against God. And so he says in verse 7, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David in Psalm 95, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because remember what's going on in verses 6 through 11, it's a warning to not be like those people back then. And so he's wanting to accentuate the fact that God is speaking to you right now, today, today. And I find this really, really important. In fact, pastorally, as I, as I meet with people over the years, and even as I deal with my own heart, there is this insidious little tactic of the enemy when we are striving and straining and feel discouraged in the Christian life. We sometimes buy into the lie that the door of God's mercy is no longer open for me because how I have disobeyed in the past, even the very recent past. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to anybody that he's writing to in the first century and to us, he's saying, listen, even if you've kind of, you're tempted or maybe you even find yourself giving up on Christ, the door of God's mercy is still open today. Today. Don't look at yesterday. Look at, look at today. Look at God's mercy right now. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he says in verse 8, he says, listen, if Joshua had given them rest, meaning going into the promised land, God would have not spoken about another day later on, which is right now. So he's basically saying this is all just a shadow. And he's saying, so then there remains. Look forward, not Backwards, there remains a Sabbath rest, peace with God for you. If you are still drawing breath today, you cannot harden your heart and you can be reconciled and have rest with God. There's a strange little thing that happens in our hearts, and I actually think it's, it, it, it springs out of a kind of man-centered religious spirit, and it's this spirit of, it's like guilt. And we like make ourselves feel better by feeling guilty all the time. But what, it's a kind of spiritual warfare going on inside our hearts. You know, oh, well, you, know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've messed up. And I think sometimes what happens subconsciously in our hearts is we're actually nursing our desire for self-righteousness by making ourselves feel better about how bad we feel about our past. And in that moment, what we're not doing is we're not looking at God's mercy today. We're actually 
focusing, clinging, holding fast to the guilt of our sin yesterday, which strangely makes us feel better about ourselves because it projects as a kind of humility. But friends, it's not. It's actually a pride. And the writer of Hebrews is here saying, I think to us today, at least one application of this, is he's saying, look, rest, reconciliation, wholeness with God, forgiveness of your sins, the promise of glorification. If you're drawing breath, it's still open to you. It's still yours. So do not harden your heart. Don't. Nobody is beyond God's mercy. In fact, we're going to get to Hebrews chapter 7 in a little bit. Not today, in a couple weeks. And he says that he is mighty to save to the uttermost. There's nothing that you're involved in today. There's nothing that you did this last week. There's nothing that you're going through. There is no court of sin which is too strong for God to break with his mercy. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 4. That's the call to rest. And here's the beauty is if we can see that and the rest, because goodness, aren't our hearts anxious? Isn't that, boy, looking back to yesterday, doesn't that just drag you down? It makes you tired. It binds up your soul. And the message of Hebrews 4 is the rest, the freedom that comes with Christ. But here, okay, before we move on, here's this really interesting twist in verses 10 through 11, which kind of, it, it almost sounds counterintuitive. And to some degree, it is counterintuitive because, you know, we, we're fleshly people and spiritual realities are, they come from heaven, not from the earth. And so it kind of confronts our man-centered logic. It says, verse 10, he says, for whoever has entered God's rest, meaning not just gotten to the promised land, but who's been reconciled to God by heeding his message and believing, holding on to him. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean you don't, you don't fight against stuff. Whoever's entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So we, we have this kind of parallel. We, we are no longer striving. We, we come to this place of completion not because we've earned our salvation, right? But because of belief, what are we trusting in? Not our works, but we're trusting in Jesus' works. And so we have finally stopped trying to justify ourselves, and we've come to this place of rest in Christ, who through His work, through His righteousness, has justified us through His death on the cross and His resurrection. So He says, for whoever's entered God rest has rested from this, Verse 11, though, listen to what it says. Therefore, let us... Now, here's the, here's the seeming contradiction. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Well, what does it mean to strive to enter that rest? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? In one sense... It seems like this passage, in fact, it seems like maybe the whole message of the gospel is, you know, unclench your fists, unclench your hands from your own righteousness. Stop striving to live by your own works. Let go of that and grab a hold of Christ and rest in him. But verse 11 is saying, 
strive to enter that rest. Do you see the seeming juxtaposition, the, the kind of contradiction? Strive to enter that rest. Does anybody else see this? Come on, are you live out there? Let's go. No, no, don't, don't give me that. Don't give me that. I, don't, I didn't deserve that. I just want to make sure you're awake. <laughs> so, so this brings me to point number two, and I think this is what I think essentially is the heart of this chapter. It's a warning, and it's a warning to nominal, lazy Christians who are tempted to take the easy road, and it's this. Truth number two is that the Christian life, the Christian life takes work. And you think, oh, Brad, we, we believe the gospel. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? No, what, what, what is the workspace justification? What are you doing, Brad? I said, that, that sounds very man-centered. Oh, come on, take a deep breath. Relax for a second. Read the whole Bible. The Christian life takes work. Let's admit that. It's a struggle. It's a strain. Come on, we've got a couple honest saints in here. It's a strain. It's a strain not so that we will earn our salvation. We can't do that. We're dead in our sins. We are given a new heart by God, and with that new heart we have faith, and we exercise it in Jesus The strain is not something that we endure to be saved. Listen carefully. But the strain, the striving, is the something that we are enabled to do because we are saved. That's the point of, I think, what's going on here. That's the exhortation of verse 11. Therefore, strive. To enter that rest, to get all the way home. And here's this paradigm, here's this paradox. I, I know that we are saved by Christ alone. And I know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, that those who are saved, and Tyler preached on it last week from 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are kept in heaven by God and our salvation, our future glorification is imperishable. Somebody who's been truly born again cannot lose their salvation because it was not theirs in the first place to lose. God did it. God works in us. God will take us all the way home. The Bible is full. There's a mountain of verses that I could read that talk about the persevering, the keeping love of God. A true Christian who's truly been born again can never fully, finally fall away from God, but they will be kept by his power until that day. But here's the point, friends. The way... Part of the way they are kept is by God enabling them to strive to keep themselves as God ultimately is keeping them. And so if you're a true Christian, you're going to hear these words and it's going to be, this is for me, this isn't for the next guy, this isn't for somebody else that should be here this Sunday, this is for me, so I need to strive because I've been made alive, because I can obey God, now I need to hold on to Christ with all that I have. Strive to enter that rest. A Christian life takes work. We need to hold fast, we need to take care, we need to draw near. In fact, Hebrews is full of exhortations about things that we must do that don't lead us to salvation, but necessarily must flow out of our salvation. 
That's what I think the writer's getting at here. The Christian life takes work. Okay, one little side note on that. But why is it like that? You might think, well, gosh, God, why would you, why would you save me only to leave me here to struggle for about 50 or 60 years until I make it to that final and full rest? Why would you do that, God? Well, have you considered, have we considered that maybe God wants to put his surpassing worth on display in our lives and a sweeter, better way of doing that is leaving us here to struggle and strain for the prize that awaits us rather than to just beam us up? Have you considered that? That even our lives, I remember uh, one time a brother said this here, that our justification, our sanctification, our struggle, our striving is what God uses to lead to other people's justification as somebody around you in your life sees you preferring Christ, taking God's side against your sin, and they see you doing it imperfectly, sometimes falling up, but getting back up. Friends, that is far more encouraging than somebody being a super saint that seems otherworldly that other people can't touch. So our striving is a means of encouragement for weaker saints and a means of evangelism to the world. All right, side rabbit trail over. See, I did what the writer of Hebrews did in verses 7 through 10. See, preachers have rabbit trails. Amen and amen. All right, now we're going to end on these last two verses. And they're famous verses. And I think up to this point... This is why I love to preach through books of the Bible because I, it sheds new light for me on verses that sometimes I just kind of pull out without reading carefully. And this is a verse that I don't think I fully understood until this week. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, now it takes a strange turn. So he's talking about the rest, and then all of a sudden there's this famous verse seemingly out of nowhere about the Word of God. What, what relationship does this have? Verse 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, what's going on? Where did those verses, that sort of doctrinal statement seemingly about the word of God come from? And what does it have to do with verses 1 through 11? Well, up to this point, I think I have tended to read this passage as this wonderful sort of statement about the word of God. And I think it's that. But in my mind, I picture myself wielding the Word of God, and I see it as sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's something that we wield against the world or against our enemies or against whatever. And that is true. That That's true. I don't want to diminish that at all. In fact, I think that Ephesians chapter 6 actually speaks of the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit being really the one offensive weapon along with prayer of the saints. So I do not want to diminish the truth of the word of God being wielded by the saints for spiritual battle. 
But notice the context of verses 12 and 13. What's the word of God that he's referring to here? It's not like he's going through this explanation of this Old Testament passage in Exodus and Numbers of Israel wandering in the wilderness, being reflected on by David in Psalm 95, and he's calling us to listen to this word and not be like those people in the Old Testament spoken of in this word and to not harden our hearts. And then just all of a sudden, he has this rabbit trail thought bubble and says, oh, by the way, the word of God is really, really powerful, just so you know. Okay, back into the text. No, that's not, that's not the way the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews. In context, the word of God here is the word of judgment of Psalm 95, where David is saying that I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest because of the hardness of their hearts. And so who's wielding the sword here? It's not us against the world. Although I want to say, yes, we do that. There are other places in the Bible where that happens, and I don't want to diminish that at all. But who's wielding the word of God here is the spirit. And who's on the sharp edge of the sword? It's us. Who is he laying bare? Who is he, who is he killing with this word? Us. Lots of, lots of ink has been spilt on what does it mean he divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I, I think that's just a way of saying that the word of God cuts us wide open. And he lays us bare. And he lays us naked before him. Which leads us to the third truth, friends. This brings us to this place of, of utter humility. It's this, is it? And here's the point. That the writers, that the author's trying to bring us to is that no one, no one can hide from God. He knows everything about us. He knows those areas of our heart that resist his rest. Look, he knows what you were doing last week. He knows what you were doing last summer. He knows what's going on in your heart right now. He, he knows, he knows it all. So to the first century Jew who, see, this, this catches everybody. It's this how beautiful the word of God is. It's like this net that has application no matter where our souls are. To the Christian that has trusted in the gospel, but is maybe being tempted to revert back to their own righteousness, or maybe they're being tempted to revert back to ease to not really striving and being vigilant about their life and really pursuing God. And maybe, maybe you find yourself in a place of sanctification where you never thought you'd be battling and dealing with sin and its deceitfulness. And it's, it's, it's just absolutely disarmed you. you. You have no fruitfulness in your life. You, you're trusting in Jesus, but, but really you're, you're, you're tempted. You're, you're, you're really vulnerable to be like those Israelites in the desert who don't make it all the way home because you've just kind of you, you, you've just sort of turned inward on yourself and the word of God comes and it says, look, I know, what you're, I know what's in your heart. It kills you. 
Or maybe you're not a believer and you've walked into this room and you've thought, you know, I'm making this resolution to try and clean up my life and I want to go hear an inspiring message about how I can reach down and pull up my bootstraps and I can do harder. And look, look, I hope that what you've heard today is, man, you can't do that. You'll find no rest in that. This sword of the word of God says you cannot bring yourself into rest. God must give it to you. And he must make your heart alive. And your only way of holding on to God is if he gives you a new heart so that you can do that. You can only believe in him, not in yourself. So wherever you are in the spiritual spectrum, verses 12 and 13 aren't meant to be a a sort of a a, a little bubble thought statement about the, the power of the word of God. As much as that is true, it's meant to be a sword that kills us all, and lays us before God. Okay. Brad, I see that. It's not the most cheerful thing you've ever said from the pulpit in these past 18 years, but where does that leave us? Well, friends, we can't... Listen, this is so important. It leaves us in a very vulnerable place. So right now, we're at a junction. And notice where the author sends us next. Verses 14 through 16. He sends us to Jesus. Since therefore, look, you're you're dead. You've been caught. You're, you're, You're dead to rights. The sword of the Spirit sword of the word of God has laid you bare. He knows everything about you. He knows where you're resisting him. He knows where you're hiding from him. He knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. What are you doing, child? And he brings us to Jesus. Since therefore we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, Jesus doesn't look at all those places that have been laid bare in you and shake his head in disgust. He's become a man and he's experienced it all. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then we could fill in what the rest of the Bible says about the gospel, that Jesus then lays down his perfect life on the cross to bear the wrath of God, to absorb the death that you deserve and turn it into favor and grace. So he's reminding us of the gospel. Let go of yourself and grab a hold of God. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Isn't that antithetical? Sinners that have been slain by the word of God who have nothing to rely on, they have nothing to commend themselves to God. What does he say to them, to us? He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because we are good? Because we have something? No, because Jesus is good. And what will we find there? We may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Amen. We'll find rest in Jesus. Afresh. Peace with God. And he will bring us all the way home. Let me pray. 
Lord, wherever this hits us, wherever my friends are, my brothers and sisters are, do what only you can do. Go beyond my feeble, limited words and take the sword of your spirit and first lay us bare. Kill us so that you can bring us back to life, so that you can heal us, wound us, so that you can bind us up, humble us, so that you can exalt us with Christ. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, may we, may we come not because we are good, but because Jesus is good and we are in him. May we examine ourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and when we examine ourselves on one level or another, all of us find ourselves in that vulnerable spot, backed into the corner, nothing to help us but your mercy. Would you do that, Lord, as we come to the table? And Lord, would, would Christians in this room experience your rest afresh and anew so that we can continue to strive and fight and make it all the way home? And may any unbelievers in this room that did not come in resting in you, may they finally, finally, Rest in Christ by believing in what he has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection to make people right with you. I pray that you do this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.